0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. From the beginning of time, the sun was the center of our solar system. But in the early years of the 21st century, all that changed. They called it global warming. At first, they thought it was a man-made anomaly, but they were wrong. Our sun was going supernova. And as rapidly as the temperature plummeted, our sun was dying. We harnessed the fuel from molten rock buried deep beneath the Earth's core and built new homes. A new civilization that would endure until the end
1: of time. So? Well, that's the official story. And you don't believe it? No, I don't believe it. You little rich kid. If you had to worry about staying alive, you wouldn't have time for all these silly ideas. Sun, no sun, who cares?
2: You don't understand. Sorry I wasted your time.
1: Hey, why don't you believe all this? Wait, tell me. Kel, tell me. Oh, yeah, right. I'm just a girl from the cabaret. What can I understand?
3: Good morning, London. It's Thursday, July 31st, 2014. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color to black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be... 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join in our conversation today or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today's show is a bit of a continuation of last week's theme and it will include topics including superstition, polarization of the issues, the non-religious versus the religious, more on anti-spam, and what about the right to be forgotten? Have you heard about that thing going on in Europe? Very strange. Ontario Hydro Rate's going up, and they're talking about a flat rate. That's a weird, interesting thing. And, of course, uh, an update on the Ombudsman. But on our first order of the day, I have to begin with this, just in case I run out of time before doing so at the end of the show. On behalf of myself and Robert Vaughn, I'd like to wish all the best to our on air operator, Ed Vaughn Atterkass, who has been CHRW's news, sports, and spoken word director since 2011. This is the last show that Ed will be operating for us because, as I understand it, he's going to be getting married to his partner and will be moving to Boston, of all places. Good luck, Ed. He joins a growing list of on-air operators who have passed through these doors since Just Right began broadcasting in April of 2007, including folks like Ashley Bushfield, Bronwyn Loden, Tafsir Diallo, Alex Jarowski, Ira Timothy, who's still around the station, actually, and many others who've sat in on the air controller seat during our going on eight years of broadcasting Just Right. We're going to miss you, Ed. We've gotten into the pattern. we got to just as we get to know each other. We always have to change. I guess that's what life's all about. So, last week, I began a light, you know, I told you so theme that I actually never finished because we ran out of time before I had a chance to get to a number of other issues that were on my list. want to touch on a few of those today, plus a few new ones. One of them being, Beware of the Ontario Ombudsman expanding his powers, I warned on this show many weeks ago. I recall reading on the show Andre Moran's synopsis on the Billy T's decision here in London that was published in the London Free Press as his commentary. And as I read his summary, I arrived at the conclusion that the prov- provincial ombudsman, who should really be looking after provincial issues, was going to expand its mandate beyond the provincial scope. It was obvious to me, but when I brought it up with others, including other radio shows and public appearances, I got completely surprised reactions to my conclusion. And I don't think too many people took my prediction very seriously, more tongue-in-cheek. But here it is. London Free Press, July 9th, by Deborah Van Brank. Ombudsman's powers expand. And I quote, "...the long arm of the provincial ombudsman is growing longer." Andre Marin's office will soon have power to probe Ontarians' complaints about how their cities and schools handle themselves. And I recall jokingly saying that the Wynn government is cleverly deflecting the ombudsman's attention away from her own government and towards concerns outside the province's normal jurisdiction. Orser calls meeting, meetings law insane, according to Patrick Maloney's report in the Free Press on July 19th. Councillor Stephen Orser said he was in the City Hall cafeteria June 24th, shortly after Joni Beckler was appointed mayor, and claims indeed he did talk about picking Russ Monteith to fill her vacant Ward 5 seat. The cafeteria discussions are being investigated by the ombudsman because he received a complaint. But we'll never know from who, which is why this whole system, I think, is corrupt to the core. It's the third such probe Marin has conducted into City Council this term. The best-known incident was a February 2013 lunch at Billy T's that he ruled broke the open meeting laws. I feel guilty as charged, and I'm not ashamed about it, Orser said, adding he believes the law that prohibits private conversations about looming council decisions is, quote, insane. This law is absolutely insane. And Beckler has said she's bewildered by the probe, end quote. As to the repeated statement that Marin ruled Billy T's broke the open meeting laws, this is sort of true, but not quite true. I have an actual copy of the report, and you have to understand the context of it to make sense of its conclusion. What the ombudsman wrote verbatim in his dramatically titled In the Back Room report was this, quote, Conclusion. A clear violation. I conclude that an illegal closed meeting occurred on February 23rd, 13, in violation of the Municipal Act. End quote. But the part we don't hear, in, repeated in the news, however, is the fact that Marin pretty well used his own definition of what constitutes an official meeting of council. He pretty much made it up within his report. There wasn't a legal voting quorum or any administration to record any votes that was there, even by the rules established in advance. Was city council business discussed at least in some part at the Billy T's get-together? I think so, Probably. But it wasn't an official meeting by any stretch of the imagination. The conversations that counselors had with each other would have been perfectly okay if done by phone or in a private home. And I'm still waiting to find out, as I've been asking since day one, who was or who were the original complainants? Where's the accountability? Only the ombudsman knows for sure. But the ombudsman's office seems unaccountable on this matter. Even at human rights tribunals that I have attended and been part of. At least you get to see the complainant, you know who the complainant is. Giving the ombudsman powers to interfere with elected officials simply because they talk to each other in groups outside the council chambers, I think is a disastrous move, especially considering the history of the ombudsman on this issue. Or as Steve Orser would put it, it's insane, and I agree. But more than that, it's a power grab. And Marin has already made it clear that he plans to make even more recommendations and get more power for the Ombudsman's office. And speaking of power grabs, I don't know if you heard about this, but hydro consumption in Ontario is actually decreasing. And yet we warned so many times on this show and since 1984 through Freedom Party that we're in for a shock with Ontario Hydro and since our first discussion of the topic on this show, and that was before, by the way, any green energy acts. The shock we were talking about was the nuclear shock, and that's still the one that we're feeling most today. The green shock has yet to come. Just yesterday, Vinay Sharma of London Hydro announced that London Hydro was paying back to the city a mortgage at 6% to replace its loan with a 2-3% to loan. He then announced that we can expect two hydro rate increases over the next six months, which will total around 5 or 6% for consumers, and continuing increases every six months. And then, shock of shocks, talk of one flat rate paid for hydro has surfaced. The wind government is apparently in favor of this. People have been cutting back on consumption so well that hydro is losing sales, and so they have to charge a, quote, flat rate to consumers to keep their income up. Successful energy conservation programs are the source of hydro's problems. Yet, he says, the smart meters will still be in use for time-of-day rates. Now, how they're going to mesh a flat rate with this variable smart rate was not explained. You know, I heard one caller on a talk show suggest that the flat rate should be based on the square footage of a consumer's home or business, which I I can't go along with in any way, shape, or form. And anyway, aren't we already seemingly paying a flat rate for hydro with our so-called delivery charges? Even when we use close to zero electricity at my office, we still have to pay around $50 a month for nothing but the right to have our hydro connected. And that's pretty scary. For electricity consumers in Ontario, it just keeps getting worse and worse. All the while, public utilities boast of how well they're being run and the incredible profits they are making. Well, no kidding. Flat rate? No, it's a flat tax. It, quote, provides certainty for companies like ours, end quote, says Vine Sharma. November 1st you can expect another 3% increase and every 6 months thereafter. Well, certain certainty in terms of their income, but certain that's not how economics is supposed to be uh, supposed to work. If there's one thing we can truly be certain of, it's that we're being robbed blind by all businesses run or regulated by government. It can't end up any other way. That's why the governments in there in the first place. Because, you know, in a capitalist system, when demand declines, so does production, or of whatever the service or product in question is. But under a government-run socialist-slash-communist system, production continues even when there's no demand. Never mind that we're absorbing a loss of billions of dollars just to give our cheaper energy away to the U.S. market while we here in Ontario pay the high-end prices to subsub- subsidize those and the newcoming green energy plan. A free market is essential in keeping supply and demand in sync. As soon as you throw a wrench into the mechanism of free market pricing by price fixing, you've destroyed the entire ability of anyone to create a true and affordable market. Because in that system, you can only charge what the market will bear. As we have it now, they can charge even more than the market can bear. And I think what people, most people, don't get about the entire energy price crisis faced by Ontarians is that the entire issue is a political phenomenon. It is not caused by global warming and it is not caused by any shortages of energy supply or any other such fictitious notions. It's not about electric power, it's about political power. Nothing more and nothing less.
0: As you all know our reserves are being rapidly depleted. At our current rate of energy consumption, it's only a matter of weeks before the dome freezes over. Dr. Hampson, please tell us what energy-saving measures, as CEO Palador suggested, did you find? Energy-saving measures? Yes. All possible measures have already been carried out, sir. That's enough. Grand Star is a sinking ship. All that's missing is an orchestra. I beg your pardon. I see the icebergs, but I don't hear the orchestra. I don't quite see the importance. CEO Palador. would you please explain it to us? Oh, there's a surprise, Cleary. You don't get it. Your equipment currently in supply? If not, has the proper requisition form been encoded and filed with our central processing center? While waiting for a United Earth Oceans Organization acquisitions representative, ask hey, yourself in. the following questions. If you we have, have to already it up, a time, come in Lieutenant, sit down. This concerns you're going to be acquisition. If any item oh? multiple order is not Why didn't you call me? Easy, easy. A lot of us took in bunkmates last night, and a lot of us are tired. I let you sleep. Thanks. Who's bunking with you? Lucas. Oh, that's nice. little father-son thing going on there? Beats older than Mars. Hello. Be prompt. I'm very busy. Uh, Hello. Uh, My name is Nathan Bridger. I'm captain of the SeaQuest. Mr. Nair, UEO Acquisitions and Procurement. What do you need? Mr. Nair, I can't see your face. This is my face. Now forgive me for not leaving it here. I cannot sit all day like this, and I cannot get them to adjust my VidCom. Uh, what do you want? We've run out of thermal chips. Unit number? Um, TC-154-L-58. Where are your dashes? TC-154-L-58. Authorization code? UEOS... <coughs> Excuse me. UEO-SQ-1. Your order's being processed. This order is two months old. How long do we have to wait? I only confirm orders. Not fulfill them. No, you don't do wait, anything. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Uh, we, we we need this immediately. I only confirm orders. I do not fulfill them. Who fulfills them? Fulfillment. Can you transfer me, please? I don't transfer. Call back. I've been on hold for half an hour. Procedure. I've got a serious problem here. Everyone I talk to has problems. Call fulfillment. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Transfer me to your superior, please. We're sorry, but we cannot accept. Are they always this rude? Generally. This is Supervisor Charles Butch. You got a problem, Cap? Yes. Uh, We need a unit that's essential to our boat's life support system. You're talking air conditioning. I don't consider that essential. Some of the sleeping quarters are over a hundred degrees. The units will be there inside of three weeks. You guys can't take the heat, let them sleep on deck. We're on a submarine. Well, maybe there's a lesson in there for you. Y'all have a good day. If I wanted a nuclear warhead, I'd have it within an hour. This is going to be a rough three weeks.
3: Boy, that's for sure. That was actor Roy Scheider as the captain of the Seaquest Deep Sea Vehicle, a 90s television show, trying to do some business on his version of the Internet. It seems that no matter how advanced the technology, if you're dealing with any level of government, don't expect any prompt service unless it's in the direct interest of that government. Of course, the captain of the Sequest finally gets his requisition on the black market, which makes that all the more poignant. We've got two internet-related stories for you this quarter. Hopefully I can fit them in. The second on the European court decision. But first, here's a follow-up to a very recent I told you so on the issue of Canada's new anti-spam legislation. And um, the Harper government's recent so-called anti-spam law is in is in and of itself legislative spam. Anti-spam laws are not about spam. It's an advertising scam plan, not an anti-spam plan. I've gotten more spam since July 1st, when the law took effect, than ever before. At least it seems as 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 if the real spammers, those not affected by the law. We're going out of their way and purposely protesting Canada's outrageous anti-spam laws. I mean, I got a list of them here from, you know, from job employment, subject, hello. From PayPal, and we have a PayPal account, but this isn't the real PayPal. You know, require update your PayPal profile information. Don't ever respond to one of those. Uh, Payment center. Payment sent to you. Share this. Share this widget. You know, just things from people with names from PayPal, Apple, BMO, bank, cruises, uh, just amazing stuff. I've gotten about 200 of them so far this month. And all of these emails and many more uh, you know, are, are received since July 1st. I would love to send them all to the CRTC and have them go after the perpetrators. But these spammers, who are the real spammers, not real businesses with real products or services for sale, are not subject to Canada's anti-spam laws. Only legitimate business people whose numbers are dwarfed by the real spam are subject to the $1 in $10 million fines for even sending a single email to someone without that person's prior consent. Just ridiculous. Jeff Dale writes in the Free Press, "...a new Canadian law meant to cut down on junk email looks bewildering and harsh to a lot of small business owners." And he's quite correct on that. He says the Canada Canada Day fireworks has vanished, but the pyrotechnics from the outcry over Ottawa's new anti-spam legislation shows no sign of subsiding. And he gets into the details about that issue, which we've discussed on this. But he says he knows from personal experience, having cleaned up his database of more than 20,000 contacts, determining which had changed companies or merged with emails, were stale. He followed that up with electronic messages to 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 determine opt-ins and opt-outs. Then he hired his daughter to clean up failed correspondences, uh, a costly, time-consuming venture for the business owner. And the business owner we're talking about is uh, a fellow named Stevens from um, Ontario based, oh, Talbot Stevens, author of the Smart Debt Coach, Secrets of the Rich to Increase Your Wealth and Security, and he's trying to communicate online. Faith Oaks, general manager of London's Palace Theatre, was initially in a panic. She finally grasped the basics of the law, breathing a sigh of relief because a nonprofit company had installed an, an opt-in system four years ago, so they didn't have to worry that much. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business, with more than 109,000 small business members, had to survey its members on the law. And so you can see that everyone is in a real panic. And, uh, you know, certainly, we I don't want spam, says Stevens, but this isn't the way to clean it up. And he says, I very rarely send out cold contact emails. Really, I just wish governments would get out of our lives. Full-page article in the Free Press. And it ends with the statement, the fireworks have only just begun. Unfortunately, beyond this single article, I haven't really seen or heard about many of those fireworks yet. I think the mistake that business people make when it comes to laws and regulations is to only look at the law in terms of how it affects them, which is a good place to start, but not to end. You have to look at the big picture to understand why such a seemingly stupid idea has passed into legislation. As we discovered on our show earlier this month, on July 3rd, Canada's anti-spam legislation is less about dealing with spam than it is with this government's crony favoritism toward existing advertisers in the country who are faced with decreasing revenues due to the advertising alternative that the Internet has offered to new Canadian businesses and entrepreneurs. The law, called CASEL, is aimed directly at them, not at spammers as such. And it is a terrible act. In studying the effect of the law on Canadian businesses and advertisers, the strategy behind the law becomes clear. As Paul McKeever, Freedom Party leader, wrote to us on July 3rd after our show, he wrote, As I listened today, another beneficiary of the alleged spam law came to mind, middlemen. The CRTC is a playground for Bell, CTV, uh, TVA, Rogers, etc. The folks who not only sell TV advertising in a shrinking market, but who also own most newspapers and radio stations. If they can get rid of advertising done directly between vendors and customers, their advertisements embedded in their broadcasts and newspapers will be the only push media. They want to force us to buy advertising from them, which will also make their content a necessary go-along. Very true. Also explains some of the very bizarre exceptions to the anti-spam law, which includes newspapers. Hardly an entity that has anything in common with charities or political parties or other exemptions to the law. And every three years, there will be more of these uh, these things going on. The new laws cover every conceivable form of electronic communication as CRTC Chairman John pierre Blay put it. And for them, their goal is simply compliance. Comply with the law and they'll be happy, and spam be damned, it'll keep coming to you. Now here's a strange story that I just wanted to touch upon. Have you heard about this right to be forgotten? Apparently a recent European Court of Justice judgment has required internet search providers to remove links to embarrassing information. The right to be forgotten came about as a result of a recent decision of the European Court of Justice. And this is written by Brian Lee Crowley of the National Post on June 26th. A Spanish man had complained to the court that events from his past involved long-ago debt problems still turned up in Google searches of his name. He had cleaned up his act, so to speak, and he was embarrassed by the constant revelation of his past. He asked them to vindicate his right to be forgotten by ordering Google to prevent its search engines from turning up the offending links to press reports and legal notices about his past. To everyone's astonishment, the court ruled in the complainant's favor. And this has had two predictable consequences. According to Britain's Daily Telegraph, Google Europe is now getting a link suppression request every seven seconds under this newfound right. And disgraced politicians and convicted pedophiles are just among some of the unsavory characters who are seizing the change to reinvent themselves by demanding to have links revealing their misdeeds forgotten. You can see the problems on this one. You know, a free society is a society in which trust is an essential component. And related to trust is reputation, good or bad, which is the stuff from which capitalism and freedom spring forth. And that the root of a genuine reputation is the truth, insofar as that reputation can be documented. Which brings me back to what Robert and I keep saying on this show so many times. If it wasn't written down or recorded, it didn't happen. I'm still haunted by the words of Salim Mansoor on this very show when I asked him how it was possible that so many millions in India and other countries were wiped out by politics and armies, and yet we in the West never even knew about it. Well, because nobody wrote about it, he, he replied. There were no history books written to tell those stories. Beyond the mere historical record and accuracy of fact, there is the all-important issue of reputation. Reputation is everything, and it's earned, whether it's good or bad. And so long as it's factual and truthful, the idea of erasing records of that which actually happened, I think, is repugnant to most people. Reputation, for example, is a vital component of Freedom Party's identity and strategy, and is why, as a political party, it's the only one with a living objective archive online documenting the party's activities and accomplishments since its foundation. That's what makes a long-term strategy possible and makes it possible for others to know us. But the other political parties are constantly deleting their numerous pasts as their policies and objectives all become more like each other, and as their views of today... differ 180 degrees from their views of yesteryear. You can't find a record like the one I described about FP online with regard to the other parties because it would be an embarrassment to them. But at least the websites they're changing belong to them. And unlike being forced to comply to some request by law, the parties are strictly doing it in their own self-interest. Fortunately, they cannot stop you, me, or the media in general from retaining any records they might have deleted themselves. Well, at least not until the European idea crosses the ocean and we suddenly find ourselves with another stupid anti-spam-like law. But by then, we'll probably have forgotten about the spam law. We'll be back after this. Captain, sensors indicate a planet-wide reduction in tectonic stress levels. It worked!
1: We did it!
0: Your parents will be safe now.
1: You did this for me?
0: Look, Sarzenka. There is your home. Data. Escort it to sick bay. Aye, sir. Doctor.
1: Yes, Captain.
0: Data and the alien are on their way down. What would be involved? in removing all memory of her communication with data and her visit to the ship?
1: Assuming that her brain structure is similar to ours, the memories would be stored chemically on the neurons of the cerebral cortex. They're also time-dependent. I would have to scan for the age of the chemical links and try to find the relevant neurons. Well, do your best.
0: Dr. Pulaski, this is Sarzenka.
1: Hello, Sarzenka. Hello. Sarzenka, we're going to run a few scans, just to be sure you're all right. Data will be right here, don't worry. You did a good thing, Data. But are we
3: doing a good thing now, Doctor?
1: This is to protect her as much as us.
3: By robbing her of her memories,
1: Remember you and this ship would complicate her future. She has to be the person she was born to be. And you'll remember. Come.
0: Is Sir safely home? Yes, sir. She will not remember me, sir. But I will remember her. Remembrance and regrets, they too are a part of friendship. Yes, sir. And understanding that has brought you a step closer to understanding humanity.
1: Brought me home last night and uh, and then he had the police bring my car back this morning. Who is it? Special delivery. Just a second, Stella. Somebody's at the door. Miss Mundy? Yes. Just a moment.
2: Ah! Hiya, Tubbs. I've been looking forward to this meeting for some time.
1: You, you're a dwarf?
2: True, true. J.J. J. McEwen's my name, and life's my game. Not life insurance, but life everlasting. Get arrested? Oh, my God. Sure you are. Uh. Please, if I'm going to do this right, I've got to have your undivided attention. Uh. She'll call you right back.
1: Uh. You, you're the dwarf
2: we prefer to be called little people.
1: It was you who was asking
2: for me at the library. True, true. But unfortunately our paths didn't cross. No matter. Today, I have brought with me a little present that my employer wants you to have. And all that is required of you is to consider the possibility of coming closer to God. Keep away from me! Uh, Miss Mundy, Why take this attitude? I'm merely a salesman of the divine word. Uh, Look upon me as an instrument who will release you from the worries of the world and bring you the promise of eternal rest.
1: Keep away from me.
2: Miss Mundy? Do you believe in life after death? Ah! (laughs)
3: Goldie Hawn in one of her movies again, Foul Play, uh, saw a couple of interesting articles in both the National Post and in the London Free Press dealing with the issue of people who tick no religion when they're asked what religion do they adhere to. And in fact, the headline in the National Post of May 27th on an article by Joseph Green read, What do those who tick no religion believe? And the reason all these articles have been coming up, and I was wondering about that, that's, you know, I start collecting these things in file folders, and I start seeing, oh, huh, here's a pattern, what's going on? Well, apparently, more than 8,000 academics were gathered at Brock University in St. Catharines this past May, and for the Annual Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences, presenting papers on how we live, love, learn, and clash. And uh, the National Post ran a series of these, of which this was one, and the Free Press had some as well. But this one from uh, Joseph Breen I just highlighted some of the key points from it. He writes, To sociologists of religion, they are the nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S in quotation marks. Officially non-religious, they are not Catholic, nor Jewish, nor nor Sikh, Muslim, Buddhist, or Anglican. Ask for their religion they tick the box for none. But this is not quite right, he says. According to the the Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences, the nuns look more like sums, (laughs) with a great many still behaving as spiritual seekers in their own way. It shows that the nuns, whose numbers grew in Canada from 10% in 1985 to around 25% today, are a diverse group, spanning militant atheists and freelance spiritualists, one-time Catholics, non-observant Jews, secular Muslims, and others. Surveys indicate a fifth of them attend religious services annually, but, and not just weddings or funerals. Two out of five believe in God. One in five have experienced God's presence, more than a third believe in life after death, and more than one in ten pray weekly of course overall religion is in decline in canada and across the west he writes since nineteen seventies declining rates of religious affiliation have dramatically altered the sociological picture the end point of this process is the collapse of religion as a social force in the west he writes on the other hand the theory of individualization says it's only institutional indicators that are falling people still participate in a more personal no, personal way and this is known as believing without belonging and he writes in, in the modern era individuals move away more and more from churches and religious groups for a variety of reasons including a dislike of the political involvement and undertones as well as the authoritarianism found in many churches and that's basically the view from the national posts uh, Joseph Breen then i found another one by Reverend Rob Ripley in the London Free Press that appeared on July 25th. And it writes, and the headline was, Nuns will be tough to convert, although I had to ask myself, why would you want to convert them in the first place? And he says, uh, the rise of the nuns is not the latest science fiction tale of an alien invasion. It's a growing group of people known to demographers and sociologists as the nuns because when asked to identify their religion, they check off that box for none. What do we know about the nuns? All they have told us is that they have no religious affiliation. They are a diverse mix, including, but not limited to, atheists, agnostics, of course, and those who would consider themselves decidedly spiritual, but not seeking an organized religion. One time Catholics, lapsed Anglicans, secular Muslims, non observant Jews, you name it, he says. Today's young adults are more unhinged from traditional authorities and institutions than any prior generation of 20-year-olds. They didn't grow up with religion and have not embraced it as adults. No guilt, no shame, no fear of eternal damnation. Nuns tend to be more liberal on social issues, including a significantly higher percentage favoring pro-choice and marriage equality policies. Despite being a more secular country, however, don't expect an atheist Canadian prime minister in the near future, he writes. Are we seeing the end of religion as we know it? Hardly. Churches are closing, but organized religion is not dead. Others have called for a radical recalibration so that institutional religion can reach out to the nuns. Good luck with that, he writes. Seriously, despite their diversity, the nuns have either decided that there is no God and or would simply rather sleep in or go for a run on a Sunday morning. Tough crowd tough crowd for conversion, to say the least, and growing, end quote. Now, my first reaction to the headline, What Do Those Who Tick No Religion Believe?, was, well, What do those who tick any particular religion believe? I don't think you can really know just from a person telling you he's Jewish or Catholic or Muslim literally what that person believes. You have to get to know the person. There's enough diversity within the religions to almost create a dozen other religions. And if, quote, nuns tend to be more liberal on social issues, including a significantly higher percentage favoring pro-choice and marriage equality policies, then, well, that's a something, isn't it? It's not a nun it then follows that the sums are not liberal on social issues and are opposed to pro-choice and marriage equality, which is another something. Because, again, as we've said so many times before, there ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there was, wouldn't that be something? And so it goes. A nun is not a nothing, it's just a something else. When the sociologists of religion who came up with the nun's concept did so. They arrived at this designation based on a very narrow range of choices. Let's face it, what was it, none of? None of the above, right? As given from a narrow list of traditional ways of categorizing ideas and religions. Not none or nothing in the literal sense. Bottom line, in this respect, there are conflicting values and principles in play, all of the time as soon as enough people practicing one particular set of principles or beliefs uh, get together and organize around such beliefs you've got one of two things you've either got a religion or a political movement or both and that's why I've always said religion and politics have gone hand in hand since the beginning of recorded history these patterns of thought and conflict will never change and will always be with humanity What matters to the well-being of most of humanity is which of those ideas become the dominant ideas in a particular culture because those will be the ideas that drive the direction of that culture. This is not solely a religious phenomenon but also a secular one as we will discover when we return on the other side of this boys. Howdy, ma'am.
1: Howdy to you, too. You got here
2: quick. Uh, we took the red eye. Well, come on in. Thank you kindly. Can I, can I get you something to drink? Uh, no, thank you. If y'all
3: don't mind, I got a hankering for a Lone Star
2: beer. There's no alcohol in this household. Stop talking like that and lose the hat.
3: Sorry. I'll take a diet, YooHoo hoo if you have it.
2: You'll take a cola. <laughs> What about you, Raj, is it? Oh, you still having trouble talking to the ladies? (laughs) Because you know, at our church, we have a woman who's an amazing healer. Mostly she does uh, crutch and wheelchair people. But I bet she'd be willing to take a shot at whatever third world demon is running around inside of you. Uh,
0: If you don't mind, Mrs. Cooper, there's a 305 nonstop back to Los Angeles, and you have no idea how much I want to be on it. A girl? Uh, yes, ma'am.
2: Oh, good. I've been praying for you.
0: (laughs) Oh, Sheldon. What are they doing here? We came to apologize. Again. And bring you home. So why don't you pack up your stuff and we'll head back?
3: No. This is my home now. Thanks to you, my career is over. And I will spend the rest of my life here in Texas trying to teach evolution to creationists. (laughs) You watch your mouth, Shelly.
2: Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Evolution isn't an opinion,
3: it's fact.
1: And that is your opinion.
3: (laughs) I forgive you. Let's go home.
1: (laughs) Don't tell me prayer doesn't work.
0: Now then, I must have some scarlet paint. You know where I can find some? No?
1: Oh, you mean for your...
0: Uh, my Ouija board. What is this? Incredible.
2: Uh, oh. Dr. Smith? Yes? What does a Ouija board do?
0: It enables me to communicate with the timeless and universal spirits of those that came before us. One in particular, my great-uncle Thaddeus. Gosh. I've been very remiss of late, I'm afraid. I haven't spoken to Uncle Thaddeus for months. I think he may be offended. That's why I decided to make the Ouija board. And you're gonna raise him with that, huh, Smith? I always have.
2: I don't think there's any such thing as raising spirits. It's just an old hat superstition. But Dr. Smith says he's spoken to him plenty of times. He's only fooling you, Penny. His Uncle Thaddeus doesn't even
1: exist.
0: You're entitled to your own opinion, young man. But if your sister prefers to adhere to mine, I shall defend to the death her right to do so. All right, all right, all right, all right, Smith. How about skipping the chivalry and proving it? I can't, not without scarlet paint. Well, there's some red lead in the tool locker. How about that? Red lead indeed. A bit dreary and utilitarian, but I suppose it'll have to do. He's really taking this seriously. So am I.
3: (laughs) And so do many other people. Tom Harper writing in the London Free Press on July 25th with the headline, Pope Embraces Superstition with Talk of the Devil. And he writes, quote, Recently, the largest Vatican-approved convention on exorcism in modern times, close to 200 priests and nuns from more than two dozen countries, met in Rome. Francis has publicly praised the International Association of Exorcists for, quote, helping people who suffer and are in need of liberation, end quote. I agree with the assessment of Reverend Vito Mansusco, a Catholic theologian who is reported by the Washington Post as charging Francis with, quote, opening the door to superstition and taking a giant step backwards. It echoes the practices of the darkest jungle in Latin America. What's more, the entire phenomenon is a classic example of the way the church in the past has so often blatantly mistaken as being literally true what is written in the Bible as allegory. This error, the fount of so much pain and suffering through the centuries, has come about for a number of reasons, and he cites four. One, already cited as ignorance, that is, a failure to understand allegory's role in telling religion's story. Two, attempts by religious authorities, at times deliberately, at other times through more ignorance, to hold a terrifying source of power over compliant, fearful millions of devotees. Three, a disdain for the best of modern scientific knowledge about the workings of the brain and the real sources of mental or spiritual aberrations in human behavior. Four, and a final reason, which is both more subtle and more powerful than the others, underlying the entire effort to explain evil in terms of satanic realism is the very human though almost wholly unconscious wish to shift responsibility for it all somewhere else it really is a cry of the devil made me do it end quote and that was tom harper's summary uh, which i tend to agree with his his commentary in this case i recall when comedian flip wilson practically built his whole comic repertoire on that statement the devil made me do it the inherent hypocrisy in that statement made for some great laughs from time to time But I do agree with the gist of Tom Harper's column. Literalism is usually the source of most religious conflicts and controversies. However, I should point out, as someone who was raised in the Catholic religion, that I personally was never taught to take the Bible literally during my Catholic education, which is all the more reason, no doubt, that Harper laments Francis' giant step backwards for the Catholic Church on this issue at least. Now we move to a slightly different dimension of this debate, and this one, uh, the first thing that caught my attention was an article by Bruce Tallman in the Free Press at um, Friday, July 25th, with the heading Amidst Shouting Blessed Are the Listeners, and he writes... A lot of people are shouting at each other these days, the left versus the right, conservative Christians versus progressive Christians, fundamentalists versus scientists, gays versus anti-gays, Israelis versus Palestinians, Republicans versus Democrats. Why are things so polarized, he says? There are currently three major worldviews clashing with each other the traditional, the modern, and the postmodern. All three have their own strengths and pathologies. And here he gives a a bit of a a summary of each of them, and they're very similar to the ones that Robert and I have discussed on the show when we discussed postmodernism and other issues related to that. He speaks of the traditional worldview as being dominant in medieval times with its respect for legitimate authority, shared moral values. And in this case, he says the carriers of truth in this world, in this view, were the priests. Then there was the modern worldview that began in the 1600s with the Protestant Reformation. And this led to free inquiry, reason, science, and economic materialism in the form of capitalism. Modernism has been dominant for the past 150 years and has brought us the goods of medicine, democracy, and meritocracy. The carriers of truth here were the scientists. Not sure if I agree with that particularly, but it's more scientifically based uh, society and ideas. And then there's a postmodern worldview that he equates with environmentalism, pluralism, and inclusivism. And he says the carrier of truth here is the individual and makes a point that the pathology is that the postmodernism is anti-hierarchical to a fault so nothing gets done it can also be anti-intellectual and narcissistic due to an overemphasis on the subjective self and the solution, he says, is to focus on the legitimate values in each of those world views, And that's sort of where I'll leave it in terms of what he said in his article. Here again, I agree with the gist of this column, but I object to the implication that polarization of opinion is necessarily a bad thing. Personally, I think that calling for an end to polarization of some issues is just another form of superstition and of moral avoidance. Think about it. If only the listeners are blessed, as he suggested in his commentary, then what about the moral status of the talkers, those who are being listened to? After all, without them, there would be no one to hear, and therefore no listeners, right? Did, did, did he, I'm not sure if he thought that one through. It's almost like that old Christian saying, it's better to give than to receive. You know, They're part of the same action. It's a, it's a bit of a moral insult to the receiver if you really take it seriously. You can't have a giver without a receiver. Or, 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 or like the prostitution laws that were being put forth by the conservative government that we discussed a couple weeks ago. You know, you can sell sex, but you can't buy it. They're part of the same action. You can't have a seller without a buyer. And it's just amazing how they will look at it that way. But there's the other uncompromising fact of values. By what means does one focus on the legitimate values in each of those worldviews, as he suggests? There's only one way I know of, and that's reason. But get this, reason is only a part of the modern worldview, and as such, would not reasonable modern people already be focusing on the broader source of legitimate values? You don't have to buy the package and then throw out the parts you don't like. Just adopt the parts that seem reasonable. And when he asks... Why are things so polarized? Well, that's because good and evil, right and wrong, moral and immoral, actually exist. And they're opposites, polar opposites, if you will. And any calls to get rid of polarization are calls to welcome the evil, the immoral, and the wrong as part of some legitimate mix of ideology. It's a call for compromise on principle. How fitting, then that columnist Monty Salberg should call for more polarization on the issues in his July 28th London Free Press commentary saying, it's time for Canadians to take a stand. For years, he says, we were told Canada's position on any difficult issue was to be an honest broker. Jeez, who could be against something that sounds as even-handed and nice as an honest broker? Over time, lots of people could be against it because they realized that very often not choosing sides was dishonest. It was dishonest because often one side was the aggressor and should be called out for it, or one side harbored terrorists, or one side trampled human rights and shouldn't get the impression that Canadians were okay with that. It was a way to avoid conflict and hurting people's feelings. But then things happened, like the Rwandan genocide, and people started to realize that honest, broker happy talk couldn't dissuade thousands of bloodthirsty, machete-wielding Hutu murderers. A million people were killed in Rwanda as UN peacekeepers looked on because of a failure to choose sides. Suddenly, the issue of choosing sides, moral clarity, and foreign policy are a big deal in Canadian politics. Should this matter in the next election? It's a relevant question as Canadians look on in horror at Russia's behavior in the Ukraine or lament the violence in Israel and the Gaza Strip. Stephen Harper and John Baird aren't just stating Canada's position on the Ukraine, Russia, Israel, and Hamas. They are giving voice to a set of values that many Canadians intuitively believe, even if they are seldom spoken out loud. But it's also possible that making the case for Israel as an exemplar of liberal democratic values in a sea of authoritarianism will resonate with voters. We all like to hear our most strongly held beliefs passionately articulated. This is one of those times where taking a principled stand isn't just good policy, it may also be excellent politics, he concludes. Here again... I like the general tone of this commentary, but I cringe a little bit when someone suggests that principle is something that one employs only on a select few occasions. Talking about your principles publicly, maybe. Acting on them? Always. You know, everyone always acts on principle. It's just that there are as many differing principles as there are people. And the bad guys are usually the first to take a principled stand. They never compromise, which is why they win so often whenever the good guys compromise on principle. And that's it for our show today. Ed, once again and for the last time, good luck and best wishes with your upcoming Boston adventure. We've certainly had some broadcast adventures together over the past several years here, and those adventures are on record online and will continue right here on CHRW next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. We'll see you then. Into color, color into black and white Under the Everything will be all- My family is really bad about procrastinating. We've still been taking down our Christmas decorations and it's been three generations since we converted to Judaism. <laughs>